2 Samuel chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I'm going to jump right into it. Like I said, i got a lot of ground to cover. By way of introduction, how many of y'all have ever gotten in the mail uh, a check? Well, it's an advertisement, but it's made to look like a check. You familiar with that? You, got, you receive that in the mail? Usually it's from like a mortgage company or an automobile, you know, you know car dealership. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it comes and there it is. And, it, you know, it's got your name on it and, you know, some hefty dollar amount, $30,000, $35,000. Well, Several years ago, a buddy of mine, back in the 90s, had a mortgage business, and he was licensed in like 30, 40 states, and so they would do that advertisement, uh, they had, that was their advertisement mailer, was one of those checks that looked, looked like a check. Well, so they send this, this out. Well, he gets a call one day from a bank in the Midwest, I, you know, I want to say it was like Kansas or something, gets a call from, from this nervous teller who tells him, listen, I'm having problems processing your check. And uh, and she explains the situation to him and all, and and he says, well, I can tell you why you're having problems processing the check. She says, oh, okay, how come? He says, because it's not a real check. She's like, oh, no, no, it's got the person's name on it, and it's from your company, and it's got the dollar amount. And he says, can you look at the bottom left-hand side of the check and tell me what the, the writing says at the bottom left-hand side? This is not a real check. There you go. It's not a real check. She had cashed it. Yeah, it was not a good day for this gal. Let me just say that, Right? Well, I tell you that story by way of introduction because what's happening today is you've got Absalom trying to cash a bad check, metaphorically speaking. Today what's happening is that Absalom is going to try and pass himself off as the king, try and, try and rip off and rob David of the throne. And actually here in chapter 15, what we're going to see is we're going to see the profile of three kings. We're going to see Absalom, the counterfeit king, We're going to see David, the true king, and we're going to see God, the sovereign king. And there are very important lessons for us as we examine the implications of these three kingdoms in our lives. And we're going to answer this question today. We're going to answer the question, how do we do right when we've been done wrong? How do we do right when we have been done wrong? Wrong, And so we're going to jump right into it. Uh, First point, if you want to write it down, we're going to look at Absalom, Israel's counterfeit king. 2 Samuel 15, beginning uh, here in verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such uh, a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me and then I would give him justice. He would stand there at the gate, which is where the transaction of business would take place, at the gate of the city. And this is where people who had legal proceedings would go to hear their case, to have their case heard. And, and so he's positioning himself there strategically, and he's glad-handing everybody. And, hey, buddy, old pal, what's your name? Where are you from? <clears throat> How are the kids? You know, all of this stuff. 
kissing babies, the whole bit. He's politician mode, and, and this is what he's doing. And, and meanwhile, simultaneously, he's throwing his dad under the bus by implying that there isn't somebody there to actually help them with their situation, with their circumstance, that they're missing something, that they're lacking something, always the tactic of the enemy, to imply that, you know, you're getting ripped off and that God's trying to keep you down and so on. And, and so he's implying that the king is letting them down. Verse 5, so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. He'd be, oh, don't bow down to me. Come here. We're past that. We're buddies. Get, you know, give me a hug, brother. And, uh, and in this manner, it says, verse 6, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, it starts off, it says, after this. After what? Well, after Absalom was publicly pardoned by David for murdering his brother. That's after that. And what had happened was, it's been seven years since, since Amnon, Absalom's half-brother, raped his sister Tamar. And so Absalom spent two years waiting for David to do something about it. And when David didn't do something about it, Absalom decided he'd do something about it. And so he killed Amner or Amnon, and, and then he spent the next, three day, the next three years on the run, and then he came back, and he's two additional years after that, under house arrest in Israel, and finally what happens is that he gets together with his dad, and they have, they have a reconciliation. Now, the reconciliation is complete phony baloney. And it is that way because Absalom's heart isn't in it. He's just making a public show. His deal is he's got this diabolical plan to steal the throne from his dad. All he's looking for in order to make that happen is public forgiveness and pardon and, and, a, and a, a, to be restored from his, the crime and, and, and a restoration from the punishment of his crime. This is what, what Absalom's going for. And if he gets that, then he can mount this campaign to undermine his father's authority and to steal the throne from his dad. And so this is, this is what he's doing. And so it's after all that has taken place, you've got the counterfeit king Absalom stealing the hearts of the, of the people just like a crafty politician does. And he's got all of the accoutrements that he needs to be able to pull that off. I mean, the guy's good looking. Uh, he comes from royal blood. His dad's a king. His grandfather is a king. And so he, he, he's got this great, you know, pedigree, uh, so to speak, um, Moreover, he tells the people what they want to hear, which if you're running for office is a great way to get elected, and he gives them whatever they want. Again, another great thing to get elected. You know, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. I'll give you whatever you want. Newspaper editor H.L. H. Uh, Mencken described politicians like Absalom this way. He said, they preach doctrines they know to be untrue to men they know to be idiots. And I just put that up on the screen because I thought in 2016, during election year, we ought to see this because this could be the banner over so many candidates running for office today. Uh, they preach doctrines that they know aren't true to men they know are idiots. Well, Absalom was not only manipulative, but he was also very patient. Verse 7 says, Now it came to pass... After 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to, to Hebron 
and, and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Jeshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. That's a complete false lie. He, he didn't do any of that stuff. He's telling a big fat lie right here. Verse 9, and the king said to him, go in peace. And so he arose and he went to Hebron. Now, it starts off, it says, after 40 years. And some of you are reading a different translation than the New King James, and your translation may say after four years, and you're saying, wait a minute, why does it say after four years? Well, because it's debatable. Some translations say after 40 years, some translations say after four years. And you're like, well, what's up? Well, some would say that the difference is, is that the 40 years is actually a transcription error. And that it was, it was actually four years and the person who transcribed it into the New King James made the mistake. Or if you have the King James Version, same thing, it made a mistake. Others would say, no, it's actually 40 years. Um, and, and the 40 years, the significance of the 40 years could be one of several things. It actually has been 40 years that Absalom has been politicking and trying to glad hand everybody and win the hearts uh, of everybody. Um, other explanations are that it's been 40 years since Samuel anointed David as king. In other words, since, since the nation of Israel cried out and said, give us a king, it's been 40 years since, since that all went down. Or it could indicate that Absalom is 40 years old at this time. Now, here's the thing. Which one is it? I don't know. My Bible says it's been 40 years. I'm going to say it's been 40 years in the Hebrew. That's what it seems to indicate in the original language, that they're actually saying it's been after 40 years. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that whether it's four years or whether it's 40 years, it does not change the truth of what's going on one iota. Because what's going on here is that Absalom is a betraying, backstabbing, no good, nasty not guy. That's, that's what's going on here. And he's really, he's committed two wrongs, okay? Um, the first wrong is that he's strategically undermining uh, and betraying and committing treason against David. That's the first wrong that he's done. Second wrong is that he's now shamelessly covering up his treasonous, backstabbing, manipulative, slimy ways with God, saying, oh, I'm going to make a vow to God. Well, here's the deal. He's got a very strategic reason for wanting to go to Hebron. See, because if you'll recall, Hebron is the place where David solidified his rule over all of Israel to begin with. So it's it's got strategic significance if you want to say, hey, I'm going to be, you know, the, 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 the new king here. It, it's, got, it's got some real significance to it. So it's a very strategic place for him to declare himself as king, which is exactly what he's about to do. Um, and when he conceals it under the guise of going to pay a vow, under the guise of worship, under the, under the, the guise of I'm going to go to Hebron to conduct this big religious ceremony... Well, what, what will be accomplished by doing that, by telling that lie, is that he'll be able to take 200 men with him, which is what we're going to see him do uh, in, in just a minute. He takes 200 men with him. Leaders from Jerusalem go with him, ostensibly for this religious ceremony. So by telling his dad that he's doing that, when he takes these guys... It won't raise any sort of suspicions, and, and it'll just all go to fit with the cover story. And, and 
when he brings those 200 men with him to Hebron and begins to have this religious ceremony, well, his crafty intent is to, is to then cause this ceremony to be the, the purpose of which is, hey, we're letting everybody know there's a new king and it's me. And so it adds credibility to the story because he's coming down from Jerusalem now with a big entourage for this big religious ceremony to anoint the new king and to, to, to present the new king to everybody. Now again, that's not what he told his dad. He says he's going down to fulfill a vow, but he's lying through his teeth. And so David, his response to his son in all this is he tells him, go in peace. Go in peace. Now, here's the thing. Neither of them realize at this point that these are the last words that David will ever speak to his son. Go in peace. Now, here's the thing about David. He has done his share of foolish things, right? He, he, he's, he's had a lot of instances where he's made some foolish decisions. But David is nobody's fool, right? And so the, the issue here, it seems very unlikely that as Absalom tells him that he's going down to do this thing, and it seems unlikely that as David has spent all of these years politicking and positioning himself and undermining his father and simultaneously, you know, uh, puffing up his marketability to everybody and, and so on, it seems very unlikely that that went unnoticed to David. David would have picked up on all of that, probably saw through all of that. But the issue here for, for David, well, the Bible says that love believes all things, that it hopes all things, that in, it endures all things. And as we concluded in chapter 14, what we saw there in verse 33 was that David forgave Absalom. Now, for Absalom's part, when he came to his father <clears throat> and bowed down before his father in, in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel, it was phony baloney and his heart wasn't in it. It was all for show. It was all for his image. But for David, it was all true. When he forgave his son, he truly, from his heart, forgave his son. He meant it. And so now, with, with Absalom coming to him saying, I'm going to fulfill a vow, even though David is nobody's fool and probably goes, <clears throat> no, that's not what you're doing, and I know that's not what you're doing. Rather, he, his response, probably knowing that, he, he says, go in peace. There are so many interesting parallels in chapter 15 here uh, between David and the son of David, Jesus Christ. And this is one of them. That just as Jesus washed <clears throat> Judas's feet when, the night that Judas betrayed him, and he shared bread with him, and he bid his, his betrayer well on the night of his departure, just as Jesus did all of those things, David now says to his betrayer, Go in peace. Go in peace. Now, there's an important principle that I want you to note at this point, and it's, it's going to underline everything that David does and says from here on out for the rest of the chapter. So, so, so I want you to get this. The, here's the important principle. David was so secure in the Lord and, and in his place of, of, of submittal to God and of being restored by God, that here in this place, he can totally rest 
in God. Yes, David sinned against God. Yes, he, he did all of these things that caused him to be outside of the Lord's presence and outside of the Lord's will. But he's confessed his sin and he's come back to God and God has forgiven him and God has restored him. And yeah, he's going to have to go through some consequences of his sin. But as far as it pertains to David's being able to just place him, his life in the Lord's hand and rest in the Lord, that is all secure. That is all completely intact. It's all in place. He has a clean slate with God because he's confessed his sin and his house is in order. And so David doesn't have to live his life fighting or scheming or defending or watching his back. Why? Because God will fight for him. God has his back. And so David can be in the place where he can just let go to God. Last time my dad flew was in 1975. He hates flying. He's scared to death of it. And uh, he, was, he, he was a businessman. He, he was in the off-road industry back when it was first, you know, being developed in the early 70s. And so uh, in, in 75, he had to go to, to New Orleans. And, uh, and he had a quick turnaround time, so he had to, he had to fly. And uh, he had a really bad experience in Korea when he, you know, when, when he was younger. And so he never wanted to fly, hated it, it was horrible. So reluctantly, he flies to New Orleans. Well, he, the flight back is, is an evening flight. And evidently, it was, it was a roller coaster. It was horrible. And so these are the days when you could be there at the gate when they come off the plane to, to pick up your loved ones. And, you know, we're all there. I, you know, how old was I? 11 years old, I think, at the time. So, so we're there. And... Um, so my dad comes off the plane, he can barely walk, and his hands are all constricted. And we're like, what on earth happened? Well, here's, as it turns out, my dad held the plane up the whole time that they came back from New Orleans. So they land at LAX, and, you know, everybody on that flight should thank my father, because he, he single-handedly kept that plane in the air with his, with his arms and his legs, just holding on to that, right? And so my dad was in this place where he was like controlling and, 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 and all. And, and it's a great description of how some of us go through life. Some of us go through life with, you know, we're in that place to where, man, I got to watch my back. Man, I got to be in control of everything. And I, I got to, you know, be careful and, and hold it. And so metaphorically speaking, the plane of your life, you're in this place to where you, you, you're constantly got to be checking every angle. You constantly have to be worrying about the, these things. Why? Well, because you're, you're not resting in God. You're not completely giving this thing over to God. One of the guys in our young adults ministry posted a blog recently on kids of divorce. And uh, his comment was, you know, they nailed it kind of thing. And here's the essence of the blog was this, was that, hey, listen, as a child of a divorced couple, of a divorced home, you never fully trust that there are these, there's, there's these underlying trust issues because the people that you depended on most let you down. And, and the, the marriage, the one relationship that you most needed to work didn't work. And so to, to, according to the author of this blog, now, you know, in relationships, they got to deal with, hey, you know what? Words mean nothing to me because I've had it up to here with, with empty promises and empty words. Words don't mean anything to me. And, 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 you know, I'm afraid to let anybody in or anybody near because I'm just afraid of being hurt again. And, and so, you know, the, this is this whole dynamic to where David, he's 
in this place to where he's like, God, I, I just, I can give everything over to you. I'm, I'm seeing these things and, I, and Absalom's up to something. But you know what? I can just say to him, go in peace because God, I'm just going to trust in you. And point of application for us, and I just have you maybe write it down and take a walk with it, is what do you need to let go of today? What is it that, that you need to be able to say, go in peace? And I'm just going to turn you, and I'm going to turn that situation, and I'm going to turn all of my fears and everything. I'm just going to turn it all over to the Lord, and I'm just going to rest in Him. Well, we continue, uh, pick it up in verse 9. The king says to him, go in peace. And so he, Absalom, arose and he went to Hebron. And then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men, invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently, and they did not know anything. And this is, so often this is the way it goes. You see a church split, and you've got some Absalom at the helm of this, who is very divisive, and very destructive, and very maliciously intentive on what he's doing. And there's innocent people that are just caught up in the mix, that just sort of go along. And this is what's happening here. And these 200 men, they go along. They don't, they don't know anything. Um, and verse 12, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. This is Bathsheba's grandfather. And, uh, and, you know, we can speculate why he was willing to go along with this plan to scuttle David's kingship and to have Absalom take it over. I mean, he's probably got an axe to grind with David, what he did to, to, to Bathsheba, uh, and so on. And, and so, anyway, he gets him to go along with the plan. And the conspiracy grew, th- grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now, here's Absalom's hope in all of this. What he's hoping is that he's going to be able to pull this thing off and that every, he's going to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and they ever, the common man in the street, in the kingdom, is going to say, oh, this is a logical succession. They're not going to view it as treason, which is what it truly is, but no, they're going to see it as, oh, well, this is official. We got this official ceremony, all these guys come from Jerusalem, and then he strategically put his spies all over the place to be able to, they hear the trumpet go, oh, ah, Absalom's the new king. And so he's hoping everybody goes, oh, it's, it's, this, this, is the, this is clearly the sanctioned thing here. And so, verse 13, it says, now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And so David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Now listen, just take note of how many times we've already, the Holy Spirit has already said this one 
phrase several times, and he's going to say it several more times. As a matter of fact, 20 times in all in this chapter, you're going to hear the king, the king, the king. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants us to know who the real king is. And so it says, the king's servant said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. And then all his servants passed before him. And all the Chetherites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. And then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you also... Going with us, return and remain with the king. Uh, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king, and he said, As the Lord lives, And as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. This is a picture of how we're supposed to be with our King, Jesus Christ. It says, God, I don't, wherever it is that that, that you lead me, God, that's where I'm going to be. Jesus speaking to the multitudes and he's telling them, unless you eat my flesh and, and, and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And, and it tells us there that a lot of people that were following Jesus up to this point were like, I'm out. And they left at that point. They bailed on him. And Jesus turned around. He looked at his disciples. He's like, what, you guys going to leave now too? And Peter steps up. He's like, well, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's the attitude here. It's like... I don't know exactly where you're going, Jesus, but wherever it is, up or down, good or bad, my wagon's hitched to you, man, I'm with you. And this is what Ittai Ittai says uh, to David, verse 22, so David said to Ittai, go and cross over. And then Ittai, the Gittite, and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over, and all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over. What are they crossing over? It tells us right here, the brook, Kidron. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And so we looked at, at uh, Absalom, who, who's the, the counterfeit king. Right now we're looking at David, Israel's true king. 20 times in this chapter, the Holy Spirit says, take note who the true king is. It's David. It is not Absalom. You see, whereas the counterfeit king was guilty of wrong upon wrong, the true king does what's right. Maybe you've heard the the, the saying, two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do, right? And this is exactly... What fits right here? And I throw that out there just as a sticky kind of thing for you. So, so as we go through this now, it'll stick for you. Because the two wrongs, Absalom, he committed treason and rebelled against David. And then he clothed it in spiritual clothing to say, oh, I'm going to go fulfill a vow. So he's, he's committed these two wrongs. How does David respond to it? How do you do right when somebody has done you wrong? That's the question here. Well, two wrongs don't make a right. But three lefts will, and here's the first left that David takes. David left Jerusalem when news of rebellion reached him. 
He left Jerusalem when the news of rebellion reached him. Now here's why. David knew well that Absalom solved his problems with violence. That's who Absalom was. He was a violent man, ruthless man, and he valued power over people. So even though he's glad-handed and, oh, hey, how you doing, buddy, old pal? He'd be the first one to slit their throats if they got in the way of what he was going to do. And so David recognized, look, if I stay here in Jerusalem and fight it out with this kid, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. And so the best thing that I can do is to leave. And David leaves and he goes into the wilderness. And listen, that's where God does some of his best work. When we're in the wilderness. Maybe today you're in the wilderness. You're in a time where, you know, you're just sort of out there. And, you're, and the wilderness is a scary place to be. It's a lonely place to be. It's certainly a place of uncertainty. And there's not a lot of rest in the wilderness, but this is where God has seen fit to, to have David. And sometimes when we're attacked, the best response that we can take is to retreat for the sake of letting go and protecting other people. Sometimes we're in a situation, maybe you're in a situation with a family member, and it's just a, it's just a, it's just a bad deal. And, and you're at odds maybe with this family member. And, and, and you know, every instinct in you wants to, wants to cry out and say, I'm innocent and I've been wrongly accused. And you want to you wanna duke it out. But you realize if we have it out, there's going to be collateral damage. And so sometimes the best thing you can do is just zip it and just, just be wronged and, and leave. And, and, and just retreat into the wilderness. And this is, this is exactly... What happens here? See, rather than fight it out, we can just turn it over to God and we can let Him work it out. In Proverbs 31, the, the, the virtuous woman there in Proverbs 31, 21, it says that she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. And the idea there is that, that hey, winter's coming. And, and, and metaphorically speaking, I got, this, I got this storm coming. But you know what? I'm not afraid of it because, because I'm clothed in scarlet. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of we as Christians, we're clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we might be able to say, look, there is a storm brewing and I have no idea how, how, how it's all going to work out. But I know that I'm hidden in Christ. I know that I'm His. I know that I'm, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so I know that, that I can retreat and that I can, I can agree to, to just, okay, I'm going to be wronged, but I'm going to trust God to make it right. And listen, here's what happens. Our, our minds and our flesh rebels at this point and it screams out. It says, wait a minute, what if it doesn't work out? What, what, if, what if the worst case scenario happens? Don't, I, what if I'm not there to fight and to defend? I'm going to be, I'm going to be, everything's going to be taken away from me. Who's going to fight for me? Who's going to, yeah, okay, I get, I get it. God's going to fight for me, but who's going to fight for me? What if I lose everything? Well, take note. Indeed, David seems to lose everything here. All his wealth, all his power, it's gone in an instant. You're like, how did that work out for you, David? Running away, that guy got everything. And now there you are. You're back out in the wilderness running for your life. 
Listen, this is a come-to-Jesus moment that every man or woman has to go through at some point in their Christian life. There are those come-to-Jesus moments in your life where, you know, the things that you trust in are shaken. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, it, it basically tells us there, look, everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. And, and what's going down is that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, God's going to take you through things in your life where He shakes stuff out of your life. Stuff that you don't want shaken out, He will shake out. Joe Foch said this, he said, Never give up your relationship with God for power or money or kingdom or control or for anything else because the time may come when your relationship with God is all you have left. And listen, what God wants you to discover is that he's all you need. That he's all you need. And God wants to bring you to that place where you realize you're enough, God. Why? Well, listen, Romans 8.28 promises us, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And what God wants you to discover is that you can have stuff shaken out of your life, and at the end of the day, you'll realize God is right there. He is with me, and even though I lost these things, God worked in the wilderness. Listen, God does some of His best work. In the wilderness, as he's shaking stuff down, shaking stuff out. Listen, at the end of the day, we're either trusting in our power and our position and in our paycheck, or we're trusting in the one who gives us our power, in the one who gives us our position, in the one who gives us our paycheck. And this is yet another one of those those areas where, listen, we see David and the son of David, Jesus Christ, we see these parallels. Because one of the key phrases that we see in this section, not just the 20 times that it tells us he's the king, he's the king, he's the king, he's the king. But listen, nine times it tells us they crossed over, they crossed over, they crossed over. What is it they crossed over? They crossed over the brook Kidron. Now, for those of you that have been to Israel geographically, you know, here's how it works down. You go, you leave, you've got, you've got the Temple Mount, right? And, and the Jerusalem up here. And you go down and you cross the Kidron Valley. And then what's on the other side? It's the Mount of Olives. And this is the path that Jesus Christ took on the night that he was betrayed. He went down. He crossed over the brook of Kidron in the Kidron Valley. He went up the Mount of Olives and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is exactly the same path that David is walking here. He's walking on on this exact path that Jesus walked. And think about it. Jesus, he was betrayed. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. And what was it that Jesus prayed? Well, listen, here's what he prayed. Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, he cried out, Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done not mine. See, David was in that place to where he's like, you know what, I'm going to leave. I'm going I'm to allow myself to be betrayed. I'm going to allow myself to be driven into the wilderness. I'm going to take this path that our Messiah took. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to get to that place to where I'm going to say, God, I'm going to trust in you. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to submit my heart, my will, to your will. 
And this brings us to the third king that we see in our text. We see God, the sovereign king. Verse 24, it says, There was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God. uh, And um, Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. So the priests carrying the ark of God, are with David. And they're going. And they've left Jerusalem. They've gone down. They've crossed over the brook Kidron. They're going to go up with David on this retreat into the wilderness. Verse 25. And then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as it seems good to him. David says, look, I'm, I'm trusting in God, I'm going to put everything in his, in his lap. I'm going to put everything in his hands. Either, either, either he's going to restore everything to me or not. And the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. And therefore Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. And so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and he wept as he went up and he had his head covered and went barefoot and all of the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. This is a symbol of mourning as they, as they are. And then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And this must have just been a dagger in his heart. You've been betrayed by your closest confidant. Your closest advisor has, has gone with him. Your, your, your wife's grandfather has gone with him. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. So he's there, he's with David, he's mourning. And David said to him, if you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I now, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abathar, the priest. In other words, this is his way of saying, look, I already got guys positioned there. The priests are guys. They're cool. You can talk to them. They're with me kind of deal. And indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. Hey, we've got a, ne- a, com- a network of communication here, and you can tell them everything, and they'll send me an email, and I'll get it, and we're all good. This is your con- communications network here. And verse 37 says, So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Now, 
Two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts will, right? So David left Jerusalem. Now we see that David left the ark and the priests in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because David's faith wasn't in the ark of God. David's faith was in the God of the ark. Big difference, right? And, and, and we've seen Israel has placed their faith in the ark of God before. When they, back in 1 Samuel, and they're fighting their enemies, and they're not having the best success fighting their enemies, and so they go, hey, let's get the ark of God. The ark of God will save us. It'll, it'll help us have victory over our enemies. No, it won't do anything. Because it's not the ark of God, it's the God of the ark. And they lost sight of that, and they lost the battle, and they lost the ark. David hasn't lost sight of that. David knows, no, no, look, you guys are coming with me, and you're bringing the ark with me. The ark doesn't belong with me out here in the wilderness. The ark belongs in the tabernacle of God. And that's where it belongs. And my faith isn't in that ark. It's in the God of the ark. And if the God of the ark wants me to worship and to be where he is, because that's what the ark of God represented. It represented the very presence of God. And David's heart is to say, my faith is in God. And if God wants me to bring me into his presence, and he wants to restore all of this to me that I've surrendered to him, then that's his business. I don't need to engineer it. I don't need to keep this airplane up myself. I can just trust in him. I can rest in him. That's what he's doing here. And I would ask you the question, what's your faith in today? Is is your faith in your job? Or is it in the God who gave you your job? Is your faith in your marriage? Or is it in the God who gave you your marriage? Your kids or the God that gave you your kids? That's a question worthy to write down and really take a walk with, not to answer too quickly. Because we want to say, oh yeah, my faith is in, is in God. But it's amazing how easily, which is the subtle thing is, it's not, it's not the God of the ark we're trusting in, it's, it's the ark of God. David says, look, if the Lord sees fit, he'll bring me back to see the ark. And it'll bring me back to the tabernacle. Again, I can trust in him. Two wrongs don't make a right. Three lefts will. He said, those are the, the first lefts. He, he, he left Jerusalem. He left the ark. Thirdly, what does he do? He left Hushai the archite. He gives Hushai instructions not to, to, not to go with him, but he says, look, you go back, you hook up with Absalom, and you thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. That's what I need you to do for me, man. I need you to take care of that. I need you to link up with, with Zadok and Abathar, the priests, and keep me informed of everything that's going on. Now you're like, okay, wait a minute. What, what's, up, what's up with that? I thought we were trusting in God to do everything. That sounds a little manipulative. Listen, trusting in God doesn't mean that you sit on your couch and eat bonbons, metaphorically speaking. Okay? Yes, you rest in Jesus. Yes, you turn the other cheek when you're wrong. Yes, you let him fight your battles. But there's also room for shrewd tactics in how you live your life. Give you an example in my own life. My, my daughter Megan, she's married now to a godly man that we love, has, has, has four kids. They call this church their home. Thank you, Jesus. We got, we got our job done. But Megan... Wouldn't you know it, God bless her, before she met her now husband, she had a spiritual gift of picking pond scum. I'll just say that. 
just if there was if there was the wrong guy for her to pick, she'd pick him. She'd be like, "Oh, we're in love." No, honey, you're not. Not with him. Trust me. This is not the guy that I've been praying for your entire life. Okay? No, <laughs> dear God, please no. And so, one day, I'm telling you, and this, I mean, I, I I'm gonna die. Like this took years off my life. So right. So one day, I'm in bed. Megan had been begging us, Daddy, please, we want to, we're going on vacation, his family's going on vacation, and it's an RV, we're going across country, and, and I'm going to go, they've invited me to go, I'm like, eh, you're not going, no, there are a few guarantees in life, Pumpkin, this is one of them, you're not going, so she comes in, I'm asleep, Brenda and I, it's the middle of the night, she's, it's the day that, that, you know, she had hoped to be leaving with them, she comes in, she whispers in my ear, she says, Daddy, I'm leaving. Now, here's what she was counting on. You can set off a bomb in my, in my bedroom and I'll sleep through it. So she was counting on the fact that she would say that and she would go. And then when they're, you know, by the time we wake up, they'd be in Arizona. She'd be like, I told you I was leaving. Well, so she whispers in my ear and God's like, get up. <laughs> and I'm sitting up in bed. I wake up. It's a miracle of God. I'm like, oh, no, you're not going. So, so I slept that night in front of our door, like literally, me and my pillow across the threshold of my front door. No, you're not leaving. So, so what do I do? Do I wait for her to just sit by the phone and talk to this guy and to, you know, all, I mean, we've been fasting, we've been praying, we've been saying, God, get this, this is a bad relationship, break him up, get him out of her life. We've been doing all of that. So do I just sit around and just wait for them to talk and longingly, oh, when you're coming back? No. I said, guess what? We're going to take our own RV trip. Get in. We're going today. So jump in the RV. We go to Washington State. What's in Washington State? Well, she had an old boyfriend that they had a lot of chemistry, and he lived in Washington State. I wanted Megan to be reminded, there's other fish in the sea, pumpkin. Don't you remember that, you know, so I take her to Washington State. Now, I'm not looking for them to hook up. I'm just looking for her to be reminded of, oh, yeah, there are other fish in the sea. Worked like a charm. We got, we, we got them back, and you're like, that's horribly manipulative. Yes, welcome to parenthood. We fasted, we prayed, we did all of those things, and I took steps to strategically break them up. You bet I did. And I make no apologies for it. And it worked like a charm. We got back, and she's like, oh, they're, you know, I guess this really isn't a healthy relationship. I guess I, re- you think, honey, that we agree. That's what you should do. Now, <laughs> there's room for shrewd tactics, David took three lefts. He left the city, he left the ark, and he left Hushai behind to to keep him advised and to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. He did all of those things. What does David get in return? He gets the wilderness, he gets uncertainty, and he gets suffering. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound like a good return on all of that. Like maybe maybe he should have worked a little harder to keep that airplane up in the air. Because by surrendering, it seems like he lost everything. No. Listen, God does some of his best work in the wilderness. He absolutely does. And what David got is he became more like Jesus. That's what he became. He, He gives up and God does this incredible work. He becomes more like Jesus who was rejected by his people. 
David becomes more like Jesus who was betrayed by his friend. David becomes more like Jesus who gave up everything so that his rebellious son could live. David became more like Jesus who, 1 Peter 2 tells us, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges rightly. Listen, this is, this is what David did, and it's what he got. Some of you today, you're in the wilderness, and I want to encourage you, listen, take a left turn. Maybe you need to leave, trust in the Lord. Maybe you need to leave and say, you know what, I'm not going to trust in the, in the, the ark of God, I'm going to trust in the God of the ark. Maybe you need to leave and say, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit strategic about what's going on here. Yeah, I'm going to pray like everything depends on God, but I'm going to work like everything depends on me as well. It's been said when a farmer prays for rain, he says amen with a plow. 